John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. You may note that we preached verse 2 last week, and we are preaching verse 2 this week. But we're not done. John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The primary thought of Jesus' prayer is the glory, the glory of God. God will be glorified through the work of His Son. And we highlighted the thought that this glory at its climactical peak is found on Calvary's tree. It is on the cross that God is glorified. All justice is satisfied. All mercy is supplied. It's where justice and truth, where they meet together and kiss on the cross. This is the height of glory. He even says that the place of glory be the cross, and he uses the phrase, the hour has come. And they're here right on the uh, threshold of Christ being crucified. It's now time. Everything that's been prophesied, everything that's been done, now it's going to happen right here. And God's going to receive glory for redeeming a people for His own great name through the work of His Son. Before we progress any further, let me do remind you, I know it may be complicated to you, but it must be said and it is still true. I'm only dealing with this verse. There's a lot of Bible besides this verse. I'm well aware of that. I'm preaching upon the authority of Christ and upon Christ's election of those the Father gave Him. That's my text. That's what I must preach. Now, in preaching that, it does not exclude your responsibility. You must repent. You must believe Christ. If you don't repent and you don't believe, to hell you shall go. You cannot take texts like this and exclude other things in the text. God is sovereign. His gospel is to be preached. He will save His elect. He will bring them to Himself. But how will He do so? You will be led to repent. You'll be led to believe. You'll follow through in baptism by immersion. You'll unite with a local church and you'll serve Him until He comes. Those truths are still there. I'm only focusing on this aspect because that is our verse. 
Now, the particular way that Jesus glorifies the Father. This verse, first five verses are dealing with the glory of God. How is it that God is going to be glorified? What particular way is that going to happen? How will God receive this glory? So as we unfold that, we must deal with this subject that's in the back of your minds or maybe at the forefront of your mind. Why do men rail or lash out against the doctrine of election? Why is there controversy? Why are people angered at the thought that God would only give some to His Son? What stirs the anger of man over this issue of election? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're ticked off this morning. What kind of God would choose some and not choose all? What kind of God would elect some but not elect others? I, I, I can't believe in a God like that. Maybe that's the thoughts in your heart. What's, what's generating some of that thought? Well, let's begin with a simple definition. We must have some type of definition to work with, so let's do it this way. How do you define election? And there's a lot of different ways. I'm giving you a simplistic uh, way to at least deal with the issue. It's not original to me. I don't know who it's original to. But let's define election. God, according to His own free will, has elected some to eternal life. God, according to His own free will, has elected some to eternal life. Now, if you analyze that definition, the problem we have, or the thing that upsets you, is the word some. What do you mean the free will of God elected some? I don't like that thought of God electing some. I suppose what you're saying is, is you would feel a whole lot better if God elected everybody. I mean, that's, that's what's down in your heart somewhere. You're like, you know, really, if God was like I wanted him to be, everybody would go to heaven. So your definition would be like this. God, according to his own free will, has elected everyone to eternal life. Do you like that? That means everybody goes to heaven. We say, well, yeah, I kind of like that. But what are we going to do with the Bible? Because we've got all these people in the Bible that don't go to heaven. You say, well, yeah, that could be a problem. I mean, because you don't, I mean, why would we even need a hell if nobody goes there? You say, yeah, so maybe that definition didn't work out very good. Okay, maybe we could do it this way. God, according to his own free will, elected no one to eternal life. Anyway, everybody goes to hell. You say, I really don't like that one. Okay. Now we're back where we started. God has elected some to eternal life. Those ones that He's elected will be saved. How will they be saved? They'll hear the gospel. They'll come to repentance over their sin. They'll believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, who are these elect? I don't know, and you don't know. God knows, and He gave them to His Son. And in time and in history, they repent 
and they believe. You say, I don't know if I'm elect. Would you repent today? Would you believe on Christ today? Would you be baptized by immersion in the future? Would you profess Christ openly? Then there's evidence that God has elected you unto salvation. We must keep in mind that no one, it's hard for us to do, but no one deserves heaven. That means your child. That means my grandchildren. That means my mom, my grandma, my grandpa, and those dear family members that I love, they don't inherently deserve heaven no more than I do. There's nothing in the human capacity that causes us to deserve heaven. If anybody in this room, anybody in the world goes to heaven, it's all grace. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe your child or my grandchildren anything. Do I pray for my grandchildren to be saved? You betcha. And I pray and I plead and I cry out for God to be merciful, but they don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. If anyone gets to heaven, it's only by God's grace. Second, we must keep in mind that people hate the gospel. And listen, I'm talking about your grandma. I'm talking about your spouse. I'm talking about people we know and love. You say, what do you mean they hate the gospel? If they didn't hate it, they would embrace it. If they didn't hate it, they would embrace the church. They would embrace singing and giving and fellowshipping. They would embrace everything that's in the Bible because they would love God. They don't love God. That's why they don't come. That's why they don't serve. That's why they don't do evangelism. That's why they don't do missions. That's why they have no heart for the things of God because they hate the gospel. They may be very nice, they may dress nice, and you say, hate's a pretty severe word, but there's an antipathy, antipathy towards the gospel. They're opposed to it. They're opposed to the gospel, the church, and to God himself. God is not rejecting people who are genuinely seeking him. Get this in your mind. It's not like, here's a guy saying, oh, I want to be saved, oh, I want to be saved, and God's going, no, I didn't pick you. These people that are not saved don't want God. They're not looking for God. They're not embracing Him. They're not hungry for Him. As a matter of fact, their heart is totally opposed to Him. Rather, what is actually happening is God is simply giving them what they do deserve. Now, we're trying to answer this question as to why we rail against the doctrine of election. There's enough that I've said already to cause controversy in many a church, I'm sure. But let's dig just a little bit deeper. The reason we rail against election is because people, like us, have emotional, relational, familiar attachments. Here's the danger. We start thinking that we're more loving than God. If I was God, I would elect my kid. If I was God, I'd elect my grandma. You're not God. At least make that note. Unwilling to believe that the parent, the grandparent, 
the spouse, the child, the coworker, the neighbor, the best friend, and etc., were unwilling to believe that they're actually going to hell. And, Pastor, this is my problem. If what you're saying is true, then it's very possible that my spouse is going to hell. It's very possible that my coworker is going to hell, and they're really nice people, and I can't fathom the thought that they're going to have a, a, a Christless eternity under the wrath of God. I just, I'm not comfortable with that. Neither am I. It ought to break your heart. It ought to cause you to plead with God. There is really a place called hell. It's really talked about. And Jesus preached more about hell than he did heaven because he knows it's real. I'm unwilling to see that those people that we're concerned with reject, oppose, and hate the gospel. Just can't see that. Just can't believe that. Or it's because we rail against the doctrine of election because, and this one's probably, they probably all wrapped together to some degree, but just give you one more. It's simply because they have a faulty view of the nature of God. You just don't see God rightly. And so if you don't see God rightly, everything else gets out of whack. So when you don't see God rightly, here's some things that happen. This is not an exhaustive list, it's short. But if you don't see God rightly, to you, election is unloving. See, if you see God rightly, you say, wow, I can't believe that God would save anybody. Oh, how loving he is. The other person says, well, that's not loving. It's because you don't see God rightly. God doesn't owe anybody anything. And for God to choose one person is a grand demonstration of his love. You say, for the people that don't see God rightly, election's just not fair. It's not fair. You're the same people that are hung up in Matthew 20. You're all concerned about fairness. And you say something like this. I started work early in the morning. I worked all day and, I get, and, and I'm going to get one denarius. And this guy that only worked one hour is going to get paid the same as me? Right. And you say, that's not fair. As I, as I was at jail Friday, I looked at Brandy, and I told Brandy, I said, look, I was saved when I was seven years old. I'm 53. I've been following Christ this long. I said, you've been following Christ for a year. I said, if we both die right now, we inherit the same thing. And she, her eyes are like, what do you mean? I said, it's grace. We both inherit eternal life. It's not based on our performance. Reflection. I don't want, listen church, you don't want fair, I don't want fair, I want mercy, I want grace. Fair says you go to hell. It's fair, you break the law of God, you're guilty, you deserve to go to hell. That's fair. I don't want fair, mercy is what we want. Have an improper view of God, they think election negates mercy. You have a right view of God. You understand election magnifies mercy. People begin to think that if God is an electing God, they are, that they're more loving than God is. Why? I've already said it, but they would elect certain people whom they do not think God has elected. Blasphemous thought exit from your mind. We'll never come to the conclusion that if you were God, you would do this. We'll never come to that conclusion because you're not God and you know it. Worship Him for who He has revealed Himself to be. And by the way, it's a bit hypocritical to be okay with Ishmael and Esau and King Saul and Judas 
and others going to hell while blaming God for not electing your grandma. I mean, like your grandma's more innocent than them? I mean, we have to understand, there's got to be a consistency here. Without grace, there is no salvation. Now, those are just some areas, just more. But I think these are the things underneath us that stir us and make us a bit angry. And that's why this uh, altercation with this doctrine has gone on for so many years. It's not going to end because I preach this sermon. I'm well aware of that. I know the controversy is there, but I'm your pastor, and I'm just trying to honestly put these things there that you understand that some of these things do upset us. They get us riled up. And uh, if you don't think it's riled up, you should have been here when we stopped inviting people to raise their hands at the end of the service and walk to the end of the aisle. They thought I was a false prophet or something. It got crazy. Listen, here's what we're going to deal with now, the text. Now, we look back at verse 2, and our text says, since you, and he's talking about God, God, you've given him, the him is Jesus. So you have God the Father giving a gift to God the Son, and the gift he has given him is authority. That's what he's given him. Now, look, we understand authority a bit. Before I give you a biblical definition, we understand authority violates our will. We understand that, right? So you go to school. we got some teachers in the room. The teacher has authority in the classroom. And the teacher says, sit down. And the student says, I want to stand up. That's what I want. And the teacher says, I don't care what you want. Sit down. Get in a line. I don't want to get in a line. Get in a line. I'm the authority, and you have to line up with my authority. We understand that. And so teachers violate the free will of their students all the time. Right? You You don't like that one? Police officers have authority. They pull you over, and the police officer says, put both hands on the wheel. I don't want to put both hands on the wheel. I said put both hands on the wheel. I don't want to. Now you're going to have to get out of the car. I don't want to get out of the car. I'm going to yank you out of the car. You're getting out of the car now because he's the authority and the police violate your free will. I don't want a ticket. Here's your ticket. Go to the courthouse and pay it. I don't want that. I don't care what you want. And so we understand humanity to have some level of authority to make us do what we don't want to do. Right? Then why is it such a leap for Christians to embrace the reality that our God has given all authority to His Son, and that His Son can violate your will whenever He wants. Well, I can't believe in a God like that. This is the God we have that is revealed in Scripture, and the God of heaven in this Bible says that all authority that exists, I have put that in my Son, and He possesses all of it. Now, a biblical definition for authority. The right to control or command. Authority. Absolute power. It's in the definition. Absolute power. Like you don't have the ability to cancel out his authority. You have no means to reduce the power that is embedded within him because it's absolute. In Matthew 28, all authority is given to me, and Revelation 12, 10, 
This is from a theological dictionary, but let me offer it to you. In relation to Christ, person, and work, authority denotes the divinely given right and power to act along with the related freedom. What does that last line mean? Christ is free to do whatever he chooses to do. At least understand the text. Whether you agree or you disagree, this is what the text says. Every ounce of authority that exists in the entire universe is given unto the Son, and He can freely exercise that authority however He wants, whenever He wants, wherever He wants, and He never has to ask for your permission. Or another source, in John's Gospel, this is a fun word by the way, in John's Gospel, Jesus is plenipotentiary, use that often I'm sure, plenipotentiary means full. In John's Gospel, Jesus is Full authority is based on the fact that he is the son and that he is sent. What's your authority? My father sent me. That's what his authority is based on. He has also been given the authority to judge the world at the end of time. Hey, I hear the talk. You hear the talk. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. I had somebody this week. You don't judge my heart. And I'm like, look, dude, it don't matter whether I judge your heart or not. Here's the reality. Christ is going to judge your heart. Well, I don't think that's fair. He didn't ask you. Christ is going to judge you. Your life, your heart, before His presence in all of glory, in perfect, process decisions and judgment, He's going to make a judgment concerning you. He's going to say, you're a liar, I don't know you. I ain't never known you, I don't know what you've been pretending to do, but you're not mine. Or, He's going to make this judgment, oh yeah, you're sheep, I remember you. I remember that day I found you in that mud hole, and I remember you repented out of that. I remember washing you and giving you a cleanness and clothing you with the right rope. Oh, yeah, you, you go ahead and enter in because you're mine. He makes the judgment. He's going to judge each one of us. I remember back in Daniel, you know, in uh, the, ES, <clears throat> the ESV, they used the word dominion. And the word dominion is the Greek word we're working with, authority. Um, so, when you hear the word dominion, it means authority in Daniel 7, 14. He says, and to him, and to, who's the him? The him is Jesus. To him was given dominion, was given authority and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve. This is a word for worship. You should serve him and worship him. His, his dominion or his authority is an everlasting authority. Note, the authority that he possesses never comes to an end. This inherent authority that the Father has given him exists now, it exists tomorrow, and exists unto all of eternity. He will always do whatever he wants to do. He's the only one who is actually free. This authority, this dominion, will not pass away. And his kingdom, his kingdom, that is one that will not be destroyed. 
Why will it not be destroyed? Because he has absolute authority over everything. And at any moment, his kingdom is about to be destroyed. A word from his mouth, the breath from his lips, would destroy all enemies. He has all authority. As he said, now this one who has all authority, Christ, he says to his church, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore. Right? You know the text, Matthew 28. But again, it's an affirmation of what we see here. Jesus standing in the center of the room, and all the people are gathered around. He says, all authority that exists is given to me. No one else can make such a bold claim. Every bit of authority resides with me. Kings bow down. Governors bow down. Nations bow down. No one can usurp my authority because I have it all. That's what Christ is saying. And then he gives the church commission. And in Revelation 12.10, you need to be reminded of this, that there was a loud voice in heaven. I like texts like this because it encourages me to preach loudly. There's a loud voice in heaven. If you don't like loud, don't go to heaven. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And it goes on to talk about the accuser of the brothers thrown down who accused them night and day before our God. Don't you love the hymn, One Little word shall fail him. All right. What is the, now I'm just trying to establish to you that Christ has this type of authority is what I'm trying to establish because that's what the text is saying. So what is the extent of his authority? You look there in your text. It's not too confusing. You look there in verse two. We've got God given to Christ authority. Now we're asking, what's the extent of his authority? Well, it's really clear. It's over all flesh. Black, white, brown, red, male, female. There are only two, male or female. There's not another male or female. Over all flesh. You want the Greek? Passe sarkas. All flesh. There's, what are we saying here? There is no one person on the globe of 8 billion people that is outside the authority of Christ. You say, I'm not sure if I believe that. Whether you believe it or not, it's what the text says. You say, well, they got all these people doing this and that and that. Not one of them can cross a line where Christ sets the boundary. Not one. Because all authority is with him, he can stop them at any point. As a matter of fact, I remember this old book. It's a book by the name of Job. He says to the devil, you can do this, you can do this, and you can do this, but you will not cross this line. You will not take his life. You mean he could just say, stop right here? As a matter of fact, if he wanted to control a large body of water, he would hold it in with sand. Job says that too. Who builds an ocean and holds it in with sand? Right, you go home, make you a swimming pool, and, and put sand around it and see if the water will stay. I don't think you're getting it. It's his authority. The, ob- the application of judgment or eternal life is in his hands. 
Now, you want an example. We all need examples because it's hard for us to wrap our minds around theology. We need examples of authority that can be offered to prove what I'm saying this definition means of authority. Give me some proof, preacher. Okay. Casting out demons. Demons beg him because they know as soon as he speaks, whatever he says, that's what's going to happen to them. You say, well, yeah, I get it. Okay, how about this? A man who's born blind can see. Who does that? Instantaneously, boom, 20-20 vision on a man who's been blind his whole life. What about a lame man, a mute man, or all kind of various diseases? Who in the world walks up to a pool where a man's been laying for 38 years and says, hey, dude, you want to be healed? Well, duh. Yeah, I want to be healed. Well, then take your mat and go home. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Right? He said, who does that? It ain't Benny and it ain't Kenny. Right? It's Jesus has this type of authority. Take your mat and go home. The guy's like, wow, what kind of man is this? You, you, you want proof? It's a violent storm. Peace. Be still. I think this guy in our boat's God. Good conclusion. I love the way you do deduction there. I like your logic because no one else has this type of authority. I mean, who walks up to a tomb with a dead man for four days that stinks and says, Hey, I want to talk to you. Come here. Who does that? And the man walks out. People are amazed. They take the grave clothes off. It's like, what is going on here? This is absolute authority. You, you, some of you guys, you think you're preachers or whatever. Great. Go over here to Azaland, to the cemetery, and go up to a tombstone there. Stand by the headstone, Coney. You preach your best message. And when you get done, you say, Elizabeth, get up. You ain't got it. You ain't got it. I don't have it. Joshua sure don't have it. No, the only one who possesses this type of authority is Christ. He can speak to a dead man and tell him to live, and the dead man says, yes, and comes forward. This is the type of Christ we have. Well, when was this authority given to him? Well, in eternity past. It's based on the completed work of his redemption that he is doing here in the end of John. All of this has always been his. There's never been a time. Hey, hey, some of these goofy guys in dispensationalism, I don't know where they get their theology, but I'm not waiting for Christ to reign. I'm not waiting for Christ to be in charge. I'm not waiting that one day he's going to take up his reign and do something. He always reigns. Tell me a time when Christ don't reign. Matter of fact, he's the one who spoke the whole world into being out of nothing. You say, well, what about Pilate? He put him to death, and he'd had all this control over him. Don't you remember? He said to Pilate, you would have no authority at all. You can't do anything except my Father gave you this authority temporarily for this purpose to fulfill what I already planned to do. Why was he given this authority? You turn in your Bibles. You don't do a lot of turning, but if you turn there, we've already preached this, but look in John 5 briefly. In John 5, verse 19, so Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Why, why is this? Well, because the Father loves the Son. He shows him all that he himself is doing. 
Greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son, here it is again, the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Amen, amen. I say to you, an hour is coming. And now here when the dead, isn't that a a great phrase? When the dead will hear. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear, what are they going to do? Live. For as the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son to have life in himself, he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of life of judgment. Why was he given this authority? One distinct purpose is that he would give life. Everything's been handed over to him, and he is free to reveal the Father to whomever he chooses to reveal him. Secondly, not only to give life, he's also given authority to execute judgment. Now, this is near and dear to some of you, and and kind of gets under your crawl, but some of you are a little bit upset because people get away with so much. You know, President Biden got away with this, the Congress got away with this, the homosexuals got away with this, the abortionists got away with this, and these people, it's just not right, it's not fair, and you're just mad, and if it was left up to you, you'd slap them upside the head. You're like, man, I would straighten this place out. Look, you understand, nobody is escaping judgment. Nobody is getting away with something like they got a bypass, like you spend your whole life murdering babies that haven't been born and you get a pass. It's not happening. You don't get a pass for being a God-hating rebel that rejects Christ. You don't get a pass. You have to stand before Christ and he says, I don't know you. And he sends you to hell under the wrath of God for all of eternity. And whatever wrath you were thinking about doesn't even compare to the wrath they will receive. There's no one getting away. That's why the Bible says vengeance belongs to him. Is it even possible to think that Jesus is somehow unable to give eternal life to whomever has been given to him by the Father? Is it even remotely possible that puny little man can resist the work of sovereign authority. Jesus says, Travis, I want to give you eternal life. And Travis says, yeah, I'll show you. I ain't taking it. What kind of mess is this? Like somehow you can override the one with all authority? It's as silly as being in the courthouse and the judge says guilty. And you say, I'm not receiving your sentence. I'm going to go free. You take him away? I mean, even a human judge has that authority to lock you up and take you away. And we want to think somehow man has the will to override the one who has all authority. It's crazy what we believe sometimes. Now, Christ glorifies the the Father specifically, as we wrap this together, by giving eternal life. Look at your text again. One more time, we look. After we see authority over all flesh, we have this last line. And here's the way he does the glorification. 
He gives eternal life. Give, gift, grace. Give eternal life to all, to all. Does that mean every person that's ever been born? No, all the whom, whom you have given him. This is nothing less than the prerogative of the Son. He gives to those which has been given to him. He owes no one anything. He knows that all deserve justice, but in his grace he gives to some. And what he gives specifically is eternal life. Now, wake up everybody and think about this. If you're a Christian in this room, the God of heaven who owes you nothing but a judgment of guilty in hell, gave you a gift you didn't deserve, you received it, it was eternal life, you have a new heart and a right spirit, then your whole life ought to be used to give him glory because he's been so good to you. Well, I have this, and 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 I have this, my life is terrible, my life is terrible, nobody loves me, blah, 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 I have all of these things, but you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. I mean, hello, I think heaven would outshine all your petty issues. The prerogative of the Son. Secondly, the perpetuity of the gift. Perpetuity, ongoing of the gift. The life He gives, I'm thankful, is not temporary. I'm glad He don't give 10-year life, 20-year life, 30-year life. There's always this word that's attached, is there not? Eternal. 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 Answer me a question in your heart this morning. I I see these things and I know they're true. I I feel them in my spirit. Whether I feel them or not, they're here. These words matter because God wrote them, right? Here's my problem this morning. So many times in the church, in this church and other churches, I see people that try to tell me they're Christians, and they're always sad, and they're always downcast, and they always live, look like they live in the Great Depression. What is going on in your heart? Why are you in the Great Depression? You've been forgiven of your sins, and you've been given eternal life, and the book says, blessed is the man whose transgressions or sins are forgiven. That text is true, then you're blessed. Then why do you look miserable? Right? I mean, what's going on in your heart? Where's the joy? Where's the satisfaction? Where's the pleasure? You say, I just don't have it. That's because you got sin in your heart and you're unwilling to repent. This ought to be a great blessing of joy to know that every day I live, I'm closer to home. Thirdly, the privilege of the recipient. The privilege. They really do live. Those who receive eternal life, they really live. They really have life. They gain all that is included in the life that has been given to them. Yes, it's true of our text today. You just have to wrestle with it. Jesus glorifies the Father by giving eternal life to some. The very heart of election identifies some as opposed to every human individual. Some is undoubtedly what is meant by the phrase, to whom you have given him. What do we do with such a text? 
How do we respond to such a word? Well, if you've not been baptized, and you've not professed Christ, you respond like this. You know what? I am a sinner, and I have broke God's law, and I am guilty, and I do deserve to go to hell. But I'm going to ask Jesus for mercy, that he would forgive me and give me life. I've heard that I don't need money. I don't need works. I don't need any performance. I just need to believe. Would you believe Christ today? For the Christian, how should you respond to such a thing? Thankfulness ought to fill your heart for what Christ has done for you. That he would reach down out of heaven, call you by name, forgive your sins, and adopt you into his family. Your heart ought to say, wow, what a Savior I have. And that the joy and the thankfulness of your heart should be lived out in your life for what Christ has done for you. And last, it also ought to give us a resounding voice of confidence in the marketplace. There's no one out there that you will face who has more authority than Christ. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses, Everybody has to submit. No matter what their response is, King Jesus reigns over them. Trust Him. Let's pray as Brother Jeff Crago comes to lead us in our closing song. Father in heaven, I thank You that all authority that You possess is given unto Your Son to give life and to execute judgment. I pray today that those who are in danger of the judgment of hell would ask for life and that you would save them and they would profess you faithfully forever. And Lord, for the church, I pray today we be reminded of your great act of grace, your great display of authority to come, to call us by name, to pull us out of the muddy mire, the slew of despond, and to show us the cross, to forgive us and to set us free. Thank you, Christ, for a glorious salvation. May all praise be rendered to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.